Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. And one of the things I'm going to show you, I hope to show you, is that John does things in his gospel that the other gospel writers don't do. The Bible records centuries of history, particularly around God's chosen people, the Israelite nation. They had long waited for a Messiah promised by God. And as we opened the pages of the New Testament, we're introduced to a baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was known by many titles, but one has particular significance. He was to be the Lamb of God. The Jews knew the significance of lambs as they were a critical part of their sacrificial system. The Gospel of John introduces John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for and in fact introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God. Tonight Dr Corbett is again in the New Testament book of John for the next in the last Gospel series, Behold the Lamb of God. Let's join him now. If you have your Bible, and I hope you have your Bible, in fact if you have a Bible, please bring it over these next few Sundays through January. We're doing some things, as you've noticed already, uh, things we haven't done before. Over the, the next few Sundays, we're going to have one of the ancient creeds of the church read to us and something that Christians have done for centuries and centuries. And as we heard Aaron say, he memorized the Apostles' Creed in, I presume, Dutch. And I would have said it in Dutch, but I figured, no, English will do, as he said. That's fine. And we're going to have one of these creeds, which were a statement, a creed, it comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And before there were printed Bibles, churches used to teach new converts these creeds, these four, they're called ecumenical creeds, which are four creeds that all branches of Christianity hold to. And it's a reminder for us, I hope, that what we believe didn't start yesterday. What we believe has been around for a long time. Now, for those who have grown up in a, a traditional church and you may have heard the creeds, for you, maybe you blanked out during that time. Maybe it became something that was like, oh yeah, ho-hum, whatever. But they're not. They're not ho-hum, whatever. They're statements of the truth of God's word that taught in a way that people can remember them. And so these are really important. So we're going to be doing that over the next few Sundays in January. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be anchoring in this part of John's gospel. And I hope to do a couple of things. Firstly, if you're unaccustomed to Christianity, I hope that there will be lights that go on for you. I hope that you'll hear something that you'll go, oh, okay, I didn't realise that. If you've been a believer for a long time, I can absolutely guarantee you that there will be things you still don't know about Christ, about God and about his word. You cannot plumb the depths of God's word. So I hope for you, today, you will leave here not going, well, that was a nice sermon, Please, not that, but I hope that you'll go, wow, I had no idea Jesus was this magnificent. And that's my mission today, to help people to realise how incredibly magnificent Jesus is. This is the last gospel that we're looking at, which is the gospel of John. It was 
the last of the four accounts of the life of Christ. That word gospel is what's called a genre of literature. Genre is a type of literature, like it could be poetry, it could be narrative, it could be an essay. A, a genre, in this instance, that gospel, there's only four pieces of literature that fit into the genre of gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So the word gospel was invented to define this genre. Gospel, in, it used to mean, it's a Greek word, euangelia, it means good news. So gospel in English means good news. And this is good news. And so you'll see some of the gospels actually start with those words, the good news. In John's gospel in particular, being the last one to be written, we've seen that he didn't want to restate exactly what Matthew, Mark and Luke had already done. Matthew, Mark and Luke were well in circulation by the time John wrote this gospel. This, this section we're going to have a look at, starting from verse 19 of chapter 1, is Behold the Lamb. And one of the things I'm going to show you, I hope to show you, is that John does things in his gospel that the other gospel writers don't do. One of them is he introduces certain things, I'll show you that in a moment, and then never mentions them again, but he describes them all the way through his gospel. And you're expected as the reader to pick that up. This is what makes John's gospel quite different to the other gospels. In fact, the other gospels almost tell the story of Christ from beginning right through to the end. John doesn't do that. He omits a whole section, the birth of Christ, the, the young years, the, all that. He just, he just skips and he, he almost jumps right into the moment when Christ started his ministry. In fact, if you count the number of days that John accounts for in the life of Christ, you will count that there is between seven and nine days, if you're counting the resurrection, nine days that he refers to out of 33 and a half years. And I guess you want to ask the question, why didn't he tell us more? Why did he only tell us this? And one of the things about Scripture is it doesn't tell us more than we need to know and it doesn't tell us less than we need to know. So with that in mind, here's one of the first ways John's gospel is different. It's divided into sevens. How many chapters in John? Anyone know? No, there's more than seven chapters. 21, thank you. There is a division of seven. And there's, there's other things about John's gospel that are in sevens, and that's unusual. Well, for example, John gives seven symbols of Christ in his gospel. The first one, light. If you're taking notes, that's found in John 1.4 and 1.5, John 3.19 and John 8.12. He gives the symbol of Christ being life. That's also in 1.4, 5.26 and 14.6. He gives Christ as a symbol. The symbol is water. Water represents Christ. That's in John 4.10, John 4.14 and John 7.38. He describes Christ as bread. Bread 
is referred to in John chapter 6, verse 32 to 35, and verses 41, 48, 50, 51, which is partly why communion, what we did this morning, is so special. The fifth symbol John gives of Christ is a door. Jesus is a door. It doesn't mean he has hinges. It means he opens into something. And that's uh, John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. The sixth symbol he offers is Jesus is a shepherd. John 10, 11, verses 14 and 16. And seventh, Jesus is the vine. John chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 5. He also records Christ making seven I am statements. If you understand the way Jews read and understood things, only one person describes himself as I am. That's God. And we see that in uh, Exodus chapter 3 and 4, where Moses says to the God who appeared to him, who shall I say has sent me? And the God that appeared to him said, tell them I am has sent you. I am. And he records Jesus declaring seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. John also records seven signs of Christ's lordship. In fact, he wants you as the reader not to be lazy when you're reading his gospel because he says, this was the first sign. Then he'll say, this was the second sign. And it's almost as if he says, got the idea, reader? Keep going. And this is what he does even in the opening chapters. I'll show you in a moment. So the seven signs of Christ's lordship was when he turned water into wine, he was exercising lordship over quality. When he remotely healed the noble's son. He wasn't even there and he healed his son. He showed that he was lord over space, lord over distance. Distance is no object to Christ. When he healed the lame man, the pool of Bethesda, he was showing that despite the years, 39 years I think it says he'd been there, he showed he was lord over time doesn't matter how long you've been in the predicament you're in. Christ ex exercised lordship over time. When 5,000 people turned up for lunch, he fed them. He's lord over quantity. Quantity is not a problem to Christ. When he healed the man born blind, he exercised... Now, the disciples say... To Christ, who sinned? Him or his parents? Jesus says, neither. But what we have here is someone's born blind and we don't know why. This is horrible luck, isn't it? To be born blind. Misfortune might be a better way to describe it. But despite the misfortune, Jesus, with a word, could heal that man. He healed the man, and he exercised lordship over misfortune. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead four days in the tomb, with people saying, don't roll the tombstone away, 
because he was in a cave, don't do that because by now he stinks. So that's really dead. And Jesus exercised lordship over death. Seven signs that Jesus offered of his lordship over the earth that he had created. John introduces Jesus as the promised Messiah and Saviour. And then what you'll find through his gospel is you'll find illustrations of this. For example, the woman at the well and so on. There are other things where John illustrates what Jesus has done and who he is in his opening chapter. And then he is able to demonstrate who Jesus is. So if you've got verse 19 there, follow this through. If you have a pencil or a pen, you may want to highlight some things here because I hope you'll see what, what John has put in here. So this is verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Uh, from Jerusalem, sorry, to ask him, who are you? Now we'll get a clue from John the Gospel writer in a moment, where John the Baptist is. Because they came from Jerusalem and they went to a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. You'll see that in a moment. And I'll, I'll show you that on a map because it's important to realise this. So notice this. The Jewish leaders asked, Who are you? John the Baptist, who are you? By the way, the Baptist was not his surname. When we were in youth group, we were asked the trivia question, what did John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? And the answer was their middle name. It's a good question, but it's a stupid question because that was not his name. <laughs> so here we have John the Baptist being asked, who are you? And what we know is that John had already declared to the Jewish leaders who he was. And so he's going to tell them again. But it says in the next verses, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they think he was Elijah? Because the closing chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 says, that before Messiah comes, God would send Elijah. The one who would prepare the way for Messiah. Are you this Elijah? Later, we would see in the Gospels, Jesus says that John came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. But John said, he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Because Moses said, speaking of the Messiah, the one who would come, he would be a prophet like me. Is that who you are? And he answered, no. Now get this. These were the religious leaders asking this question. They should have understood God's word. They should have understood what the prophet Isaiah said about John. And there could be no mistake. John wore what Elijah wore. And it would not have been comfortable. 
a hessian garment that would have been prickly and it would have been terrible and he ate what what elijah ate and so they could have figured it out but their hearts were so hard and this is the problem with being religious isn't it you can be so religious you cannot see god you cannot know god you cannot see god because you're so religious you're blind So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, the answer that he's about to give, as you'll see in verse 23 and 24, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. The book of Isaiah is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. 66 books in 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about judgment, God's judgment on rebellious Israel. It's about the sin. It's about how sin needs to be judged. And then suddenly in chapter 40, it says a voice crying out. Notice what John says. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet, he even tells them where to find it. As the prophet Isaiah said. And John, the apostle, tells us, now they'd been sent from the Pharisees, the religious people. So John is telling them, this is who I am. I'm that guy. Because the last 27 books, so 27 chapters of Isaiah are all about the Messiah. Now doesn't that sound like the Bible itself? 27 books in the New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament about law and judgment, the call of Israel to repent, and the next 27 books in the Bible are all about Jesus. That's why some scholars call the book of Isaiah a mini-Bible. They asked him, then why are you baptising If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Hmm. John answered them, I baptise with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Where was Jesus? He was already there. And how did John know that? Because he knew he was born to announce the arrival of the Messiah. He knew that. His own birth was rather miraculous. And he knew by God telling him, this is your mission. This is what you are to do. You are to baptise people. Today you can go to the Jordan River. You've been to the Jordan, haven't you, Jerry? Is it much of a river now? No. it's The photos I've seen, it's like a dirty creek in parts. 20 metres across in parts. And full of mud. There you go. Over 2,000 years have passed and the Jordan has actually changed its course a little bit. There's not much to it. You could go there today and do the tourist thing that I'm sure Jerry would have done where the tour guide takes you around and says, this is where John the Baptist was baptising and all this sort of thing. When John was baptising, we know people walked out into the water and were fully immersed in the water. We know that. It describes Jesus being baptised as walking down into the water and coming up out of the water after John had baptised him. What we're going to see is 
that John, up until the time he baptised Jesus, they would have known each other. Mary and Elizabeth were somehow related. Elizabeth was the mother of uh, John the Baptist. And yet, even hanging out together, John, the, John, who became John the Baptist, and Jesus, John didn't recognise who Jesus really was. This is interesting. We'll see this in a moment. But what it tells me is this. You can think you know Jesus. You can hang out with who you think is Jesus and never get to know who Jesus is. The opening chapter of the Gospel of John, I think, is painting this picture. Here's the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the, the priests, who are asking this question of John the Baptist about who he is and when he refers to the Messiah is already here. They had absolutely no clue what he was talking about. No clue. It's so easy to live the kind of life where you think being religious is what God wants you to be. When in fact he doesn't want you to be religious. He wants you to be right with him and to know him and to come to know that he loves you and that you are called to love him. And in that love relationship, you will find ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction and purpose in life. So note this. We see... John the Apostle tells us this. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptising. He's very particular here. It's not Bethany because there's at least two Bethanies in the Bible. There's the Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. and We read that in John chapter 11. Then there's the Bethany beyond the Jordan. Here's the point. I'll show you this on a map. This is Bethany on that angle. That's where Mary, Martha and Lazarus were. They're about two to three kilometres outside of Jerusalem. Pretty close. The Bethany beyond the Jordan was over this side of the Jordan. That's technically not Israeli territory. In fact, today it is really not Israeli territory. It's called the country of Jordan, would you believe? That side of Jordan. So here's John baptising Jews in a foreign country. In the Old Testament, that country is called Bashan, the area of Bashan. And this is where John was. Now, scholars say that the Jordan River at that time, 2,000 years ago, had a ford there. In other words, a great body of water where John could have been baptising. That's where Jesus went to be baptised. Outside of Israel, into Gentile territory... To be baptised by John, the baptiser. Now, you need to know something before we jump a little bit further into the text. Because that right there should be interesting. Because what we haven't pointed out here is the Sea of Galilee is up here. And, and up in that area, part around there, that's known as Galilee. It's a, like a province, a state of, of Israel at that time. And up there, that was a mix of Jew and Gentile, and they just got on fine, a highly Gentile area. And the further north you got, the further Gentile it got, just by the way. And that's where Jesus was raised. Interesting. Very interesting. 
here's the thing we need to know that we may not be aware of. The significance of a lamb. Almost central to Israel's worship of God. Almost. You see, when they came out of Egypt, they had to take a lamb. When they came out of Egypt, because they were slaves in Egypt, they had to take a lamb. They had to take one that was without blemish, uh, a year old, and they had to sacrifice it and eat it as a roast lamb. And that wasn't done by a priest. People had to do that. Everyone had to do that. Salvation wasn't going to come through a priest. It was going to come through a direct connection with God himself. Interesting. The lamb played that central role in that story. It had to be without a broken bone and it had to be pure and perfect. What I want to point out to you is, is this this is Exodus 12:3 that describes what I've just told you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So the lamb played the central symbol in their freedom from Egypt. Egypt was a symbol of oppression and sin. And here, the lamb was to be their symbol of freedom, being free. And coming away. The prophet Isaiah, whom we've already referred to, described the Messiah like this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So the Messiah was prophesied by Isaiah to be someone who would appear to the people as a lamb. This is really odd because the vision that the Jews had of their coming Messiah was one who rode on a horse with an army to come and overthrow the Romans. But one day, as Jesus came to be baptised by John, John sees something that no one else saw. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that moment, John saw something. And John, we will see here that John the Apostle is going to say, "Oh, Let me tell you why he did that. So we go... We go back a little bit in the story and John tells us this. This is he of whom I said, he's now telling us what John the Baptist had previously said. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Who was born first, John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist. He was six months older. And he's just said, that guy there came before me. No, he, what, what are you talking about? You can see what he's talking about. He's now seen something in the spiritual realm where he goes, this isn't my cousin. Oh my goodness. This is him. And in that moment, the moment when Christ came out to be baptised, John saw something. This is the point, I think, that we read in John chapter 1. You can think you see Jesus. 
You can think you know about him, but until your eyes are opened, you don't see him at all. Man, I myself, this is what John says, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Part of the purpose was to show that what I'm doing with water, the one who is to come, the Lamb of God, he's going to do that in your heart. I'm baptizing you in water to be cleansed, but he's coming to baptize you with the kind of water that's going to cleanse your soul. Israel, you religious leaders, you people who are longing to be cleansed and set free. And John bore witness, this is what happened. Jesus is in line to be baptized. And John tells us this now, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. He saw the Holy Spirit come on Jesus like a dove and what we now get John tells us this now he goes back in time with the next verse he says this I myself did not know him there is again but he who sent me to baptize the water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is he who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit you see here John the Baptist is saying I didn't know him until this moment when this happened, I suddenly saw, oh, this is the Lamb of God, the one that Isaiah prophesied about. I can see Isaiah prophesied about me. And then he prophesies about the one to come who will be like the Lamb of God. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God, a divine title, the Son of God. So the expression, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, two sides of the one coin. So he does this. John gets it. He gets who Jesus is in this moment. He baptizes Jesus. You can imagine what's going on in John's heart and mind that he now realizes, this is why I came. This was the moment. No trumpeters. He saw a dove come down, or he saw the Holy Spirit come down like a dove on Jesus. And probably no one else saw it. We know the other Gospels tell us that not only did that happen, but John also heard a voice. This is my son. So he heard God. He saw in the spirit realm. He got it. A couple of days later, and the way John the Apostle describes it is the next day I'm going to tell you about. John was standing with two of his disciples, and we know one of them was Andrew. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, that's him, Andrew. That's him. That's the Lamb of God. That's him. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. They followed him. They believed the testimony of John, the baptizer, because he had credibility. I think people can believe our testimony when they see our lives have got credibility. 
And that's a part of my prayer this year. John was baptising as a way that baptism speaks of you go down into the water, all your old way of living, your old life is left in the water. You come up as a statement to all who witness it. I now am different. I live differently. When the two, including Andrew and the other unnamed disciple, followed Jesus, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? That is a great question. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you'll see. And that is a great invitation. A great question. What do you want from me? We want to follow you. Where are we going? Come and you'll find out. I think that invitation still stands today. Come, come to me and find out. And the thing you can be absolutely assured of, would you please stand? The thing you can be assured of is that if you come and follow Jesus, you can be absolutely assured he's got your best interests at heart. Let me tell you something interesting as well about this text that we've just seen. Behold, the Lamb of God. Through the rest of the Gospel of John, he never refers to Jesus as the Lamb. He wants you to figure it out. Because John the Baptist has said, this is the Lamb of God who's coming to take away the sin of the world. And we get to the end of the Gospel of John, and the Lamb of God is sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And you, the reader, are supposed to see that. The interesting, super interesting thing is this. John the Baptist uses a word in Greek called amnos. It's translated lamb, amnos. The Apostle Paul uses the same word. And the reason they would use that word is because that's the word that the Hebrew word lamb is translated into Greek. And they would use that. You would get that. When John writes the book of Revelation... He refers to Jesus more often than not in the book of Revelation as the Lamb. And it's not the Greek word amnos. It's the Greek word anion. And anion means little lamb. Little lamb. The one who looks completely powerless is the very one who overcame all enemies. That's the book of Revelation. But that's for another story. That's another day. In this instance, we need to know, Jesus invited his first disciples. What do you want from him? And the best answer you can give is, I want to be set free from my sin. I want to be cleansed. I want to be forgiven. I want to be adopted by your father to become his child, his son, his daughter. And then Jesus says, good, come and follow me. And that's the invitation I'm going to pray about after this song, which talks about that amazing grace. Father, I pray that 
that gift that you offer us, that amazing grace you offer us. Because Jesus was the lamb, the sacrificial lamb that bore the sins of the world past, the sins present and the sins of the future in which we live and generations will yet live. He has paid the price. And now, oh God, you offer us the forgiveness of our sins because of what Christ has done. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of those who are longing to find the meaning of life, the meaning of their own existence, their purpose, how to live a truly satisfied life, to live with Christ by being forgiven by him and coming to know the Father. Father, I pray that over the course of this year, you would open eyes, open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf. Help people to see, help people to hear and help people to feel your presence. Lord, I pray that this year we would see people baptised as a statement, a symbol of what you have done in their soul. That Lord, they would come and acknowledge that you are now Lord of their life. I pray, Father, that we might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel Part 4 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb who came to take upon himself the sin of the world. He is today as he was in the days of the New Testament, the saviour of the world, offering forgiveness for our sin and restoring right relationship between us and God. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.